Church Podcast. This is the last of this year's Young Leaders series, The Upside Down Kingdom, Following King Jesus in a Broken World. Dr. Julius Kim, Dean of Students and Professor of Practical Theology, Westminster Seminary, California, and Assistant Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California, brings us this week's message entitled Kingdom Love, Making the Invisible Visible. It covers Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, we've been in a, a series, a teaching series that uh, we've done for now a number of years, a Young Leaders series. And I'm going to ask Julius if you would come forward right now as I have the opportunity to pray for you. Uh, before you speak, be looking in your bulletin. Uh, on the back of the outline, you'll see all of the aspects of his past. I'm not going to read it to you and spend that time, but I hope you will understand a little bit of the background. Uh, Young Leader Series for four weeks has been a blessing. You will not be disappointed today, I will assure you. Uh, I told Julius uh, Saturday night in the service last night, I said, you know, you barely came under the line of the Young Leader Series. When you have teenage daughters, you, you really, but fortunately, I'm so old it made you look young, so it works out. That's, uh, that's not a problem, but we are so glad to have Julius. He is not only uh, pastoring at a church, assistant pastor at a church in Escondido, California, but he's also the faculty, one of the faculty members at uh, Westminster West, as it's called, in California, great seminary, and uh, for 17 years has been teaching there, dean of students, and teaching preaching. And uh, I'll quote uh, our own uh, Laura, Laura Evington, as she was uh, talking earlier, she, I think, told him, said, hey, you've been, you've been teaching preaching for 17 years. You better be good. You know that. <laughs> so uh, I will assure you, God has blessed this man in not only content, but uh, in sharing the truth in a clear and uh, simple way. It's profound what you'll hear today. Uh, I'm going to do what I have done, and we'll go around and got some other opportunities to minister beyond. But uh, I'm going to pray for you now and thank you for coming and being Thanks. a part. Uh, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Julius. I pray you would bless him as he once again ministers to this family called Perimeter. We pray you would bless his wife and his daughters as he's away. I pray, Father, that you would anoint him now to preach to us in a way that will bring us into greater truth and set us free to your honor. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks Amen. a lot. Thank you, Randy. I want to thank Randy, the other pastors of this church and leaders for their hospitality and help. Special thanks to Dan and to Jean. You know who you are for all the hospitality you've shown me. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. We're finishing up our series called The Upside Down Kingdom following Jesus in a broken world. I hope you've been encouraged thus far. We'll take a look at uh, what kingdom love looks like. What does love look like in the upside down kingdom that Jesus brings? Matthew chapter five, verses 38 to 42. Listen carefully for this is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one 
who would borrow from you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. For some people, these phrases describe the essence, not only of Christianity, but actually the essence of humanity. And so for men like Tolstoy and Thoreau, as they read these words, their writings had a profound effect on people like Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. to espouse principles of nonviolence and pacifism. And I'm sure you would agree with me that responding to violence with peace is a good thing. But is this the essence of Christianity? Is this the essence of humanity? Is this all that Christianity is about? What makes Christianity then different from other religions and other philosophies that also espouse peace in the face of violence? In our text this morning, Jesus calls his disciples listening to his voice 2,000 years ago and to his disciples listening to his voice today to make a radical choice. He's saying, if you want to be my follower, don't retaliate, but love your enemy. Jesus is calling us to radical kingdom living as we love our enemies by grace. Our passage this morning is found in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he begins his teaching in chapter 5 with what's called the Beatitudes, or these statements of blessing, describing those who belong to this kingdom or challenging those who want to be a part of God's kingdom. And he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Yay, sign me up. And by doing this, he introduces us to the characteristics and traits of those who actually belong to this kingdom, this invisible kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, seemingly, that Jesus brings. He's saying this, now, to those who belong to this kingdom, they think, they feel, they speak, and they live in a certain way. Are you ready to follow me? Are you ready to be a kingdom dweller? to live out these kingdom ethics, these kingdom rights and wrongs, these king, this kingdom love. Because before you think you understand what these phrases mean, let me make sure you understand. And so Jesus launch, launches off into his discourse here in Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters six, five, six, and seven to explain to, uh, to us the radical nature of this kingdom living. And here specifically in our passage, he introduces us to the radical nature of making the invisible kingdom visible. Did you hear that? What he's introducing us today is, to, is making this invisible kingdom, this upside down kingdom, visible by your love. I think there are three themes that Jesus brings out to help us unpack what Jesus is getting at. So let's take a look at our passage this morning and what Jesus has to say to us. First, the first theme is a theme of confrontation. 
confrontation. Jesus wants to confront something. Bottom line, Jesus wants to confront our sinful hearts. How can I say that? Well, let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, you'll notice that our passage is actually the fifth time of six times that he begins his teaching in a particular pattern. You'll notice that he starts this pattern back in verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And then he quotes an Old Testament law given by Moses to the people of Israel. In this case, in verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Listen to what he says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the lake of fire. What is he doing? He starts by, he does this in verse 21 about anger, verse 27 about lust, verse 31 about divorce, verse 33 talks about oaths. And then we get to our passage about retaliation and about love. And so he says, you have heard that it was said, quotes the Old Testament law, but I tell you. By saying this, is Jesus contradicting the Old Testament? Is Jesus contradicting what Moses gave to the people of Israel? It seems to be the case because he says in Old Testament law, and he says, but, remember, conjunction, junction, what's your function? Am I the only schoolhouse rock? Never mind. So he uses his butt. So it's, what is he saying? He goes, well, I, I, know, I, I know Moses said to you this, but let me introduce you to a new and better way. So you don't just rip out the Old Testament, throw it away. Of course not. One of the simple reasons why we know that is because we have our Bibles and it's the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? But there's another reason why in the text we know that that's not the case. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's confronting something. Simple reason why we know that is because of what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, not you have heard that it was written. Ah, very important clue. What is he doing? What he's doing, he's confronting, remember confrontation. He's confronting the teachers of the law during his day that were taking the Old Testament law, misinterpreting it, misconstruing it, misteaching it, and misapplying it to God's people. In this particular case, what they were doing is they were taking this law, life for life, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and telling God's people, if somebody wrongs you, go ahead and take revenge. Do you remember these teachers of the law in the first century? You should, because they're not very fair, you see. They're quite sad, you see. (laughs) My apologies. I was told every preacher has one bad joke that they can give in a sermon that... I've just used it, I've, no more, okay, no more. <laughs> Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, these so-called experts of the law of God were telling people that taking revenge, exacting retribution, was actually the proper interpretation of this law. Remember this law? It was called the law of Talion, or the law of equity, that is, the law that the punishment must fit the crime no more and no less. And it was actually given by God through Moses to the people of Israel so they actually didn't do what the Pharisees were telling people to do. To actually exact, whether, whether that came in the form of external physical retribution or perhaps more importantly, internal spiritual hatred. 
In the hands of these Pharisees, this law of fair punishment was nurtured into a law of personal vengeance. Clearly, this was to misunderstand the purpose of the law, which was actually meant to restrain personal vindictiveness. You see, Jesus here is confronting the Pharisees who misinterpret the law and were misteaching the law. But friends, he's also confronting us. Because Jesus confronts the heart of the matter, that is, the matter of the heart. Our hearts that are so prone, when provoked, to seek revenge and retaliation. And if we're honest with ourselves, isn't that how we respond when we're provoked? It could have been the driver who cut you off on the road to church this morning. How dare you? I'm going to church. I can't be late. Oh, sorry, Lord. Or perhaps not as humorously. It could be a spouse, the person you vowed to love forever and cherish unconditionally. It could be your children. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker. You know the feeling. And if we're honest with ourselves, me included, how often our first response when provoked is one of anger, hatred, and a desire for revenge. See, this is what Jesus is confronting. Like a skilled surgeon, he removes all the external layers to get to the core of the disease, the disease of sin that causes us to despise, to hate from our hearts and even in our actions, those who mistreat us in any way. You know the feeling. And what the Pharisees, and sometimes we as closet Pharisees, don't realize is that our so-called enemies are often those who are closest to us. Well, this is Jesus' confrontation. Our hearts that are so prone to this sin of hatred and retaliation because of what? Because of idols that we cling to, idols such as anger, even righteous anger, fear, entitlement, control, comfort. And whenever anybody takes that away from us, how our desire is to seek revenge. Someone who knew well this temptation to seek revenge when provoked was a fellow by the name of Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon was a British Army officer who was captured at sea by the Japanese. And in his autobiography entitled Miracle on the River Kwai, Gordon tells an extraordinary story of how sacrificial love transformed hate to love. Gordon was sent to work on a railway line that the Japanese were constructing through the dense Thai jungle for possible invasion against India. And though it was against international law to make officers work, Gordon joined his fellow prisoners, his fellow band of brothers to work at manual labor. And so thousands of prisoners would hack their way through the jungle, through the swamp to try to build a track bed. Naked except for thin loincloths around their waist, these men worked in 120 degree heat, their bodies stung by insects, their bare feet cut and bruised by sharp stones, and as such, death was commonplace. If a prisoner appeared to be lagging, a Japanese guard would simply beat him, bayonet him, or decapitate him in full view of all the other prisoners. Many more men simply dropped dead from exhaustion, malnutrition, and disease. Under, the, under these severe conditions, 
with such inadequate care for prisoners, close to 80,000 men ultimately died building the railway. Under the heat and strain of captivity, many of these prisoners had degenerated to barbaric behavior, even to one another, even to one another as brothers. He writes this in his book, quote, as starvation, exhaustion, and disease took an ever-increasing toll, the atmosphere in which we live became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. We were slipping rapidly down the slope of degradation before the patterns of army life had sustained us, before we had still shown some consideration for each other as fellow prisoners. Now, that was all swept away. Existence had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against survival, that to most of the prisoners, nothing mattered except to survive. We live by the law of the jungle, the law of the survival of the fittest. It was a case of, I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. The band of brothers had become broken. This is Jesus' confrontation. But he moves on in this text to not only talk about confronting our sinful hearts that are so prone to the sin of hatred and retaliation, but also moves on to explain the expectations he has for those who want to actually follow the true meaning of the law. For those who want to follow Jesus, he says, all right, are you ready to follow me? All right, here are my expectations. And he explains that through the use of four interesting illustrations. He says simply, in introducing these expectations, he says, do not retaliate. And then he uses four illustrations to make his case. Now keep in mind, these are illustrations not to be always taken literally. This doesn't mean that you cannot stand up for what is right, you cannot call evil, evil. You have to bear this text in mind from other texts in scripture. But at least for our text, Jesus is introducing us to a paradigm or a perspective we need to have as followers of Jesus. Jesus is using these illustrations through the use of these implicit commands to help you understand, if you want to follow me, this is kind of what it looks like. So he says, turn the other cheek, give away your cloak, go the extra mile, give to those who borrow or beg. Now, before we begin, I think it's helpful to understand when you take a look at these illustrations, you have to know the context in which it was written, namely here, Palestine, Israel during the first century. Very distant in time as well as culture. Why is this so important? Because if you don't understand the context and culture, it can be very difficult to understand what Jesus is saying. It's not unlike a story I recently heard about a computer programmer who decided to create a translation program. Perhaps you've seen these, now they have them on smartphones where you can type in a phrase that you want translated in the language to, to the country in which you're traveling, and you can type in very, very important phrases like, where is the bathroom? And then out comes this phrase and you show it or it can say it, you know these programs, right? Well, he created one for the Russian language. And the day finally arrived for him to test his program, his application, and so he typed in this phrase, a Christian phrase, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You all know this phrase. It captures for us the essence of the Christian life. You know, the spirit is willing, we want to follow Jesus and do what he says, but how often our flesh is so weak to follow that, follow his law. And so he typed it in, pressed enter, and out came this Russian phrase. Now to test the accuracy 
of that phrase, he highlighted it and asked it to translate it back from Russian into English. Are you following me so far? Okay, good. So remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Russian, highlight, enter back into English, and this is what it said. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The whiskey is stronger than the beef. <laughs> true, this is true. Whiskey is indeed stronger than the beef. But I don't think that's what the New Testament meant when it says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What happened? What went wrong? The computer didn't have a context, a contextual frame of reference to understand that phrase. Now similarly, sometimes when we go to scripture, we go to simple phrases like, turn the other cheek, give away your cloak, go the extra mile, and we think we understand what that means. After all, who doesn't remember that PE teacher that said, come on, Julius, go the extra mile? I don't think that's what Jesus meant. So what does he mean here? We don't wanna be like the computer. We wanna try to understand what Jesus is getting at here and understanding his expectations. So let's take a look at these illustrations. First, Jesus pictures a man being slapped on the right cheek. Would you all do me a favor? Place your hand on your right cheek. Everybody, come on. Let me see you all, don't be shy. Everybody place your hand on your right cheek. Now imagine someone across from you, standing across from you, slapping you on that cheek. You can put your hand down. How would the person standing across from you slap that particular cheek? Is it left-handed? So Jesus is saying, for all you left-handed people out there, of course not. What's going on here? Jesus is picturing here a backhanded slap. Why is that so significant? Remember the context, first century Palestine. In first century Palestine, and actually in Middle Eastern culture today, a backhanded slap is considered more grossly offensive and horrific in the worldview than something as serious as murder or rape. Now, if I say to you, someone at Perimeter Church has been murdered, what are your thoughts? Horror. Horror. Now, that's the mind and the worldview of that time period. When you're backhanded slapped, that's the feeling that that would get. I know it sounds odd to you, but it's a different culture. Secondly, did you know that if, if a person was caught backhanded slapping somebody, the only recourse was to take him to court? That's how serious this was, serious of a crime. And if he went to court, was convicted, you know what the punishment would be? He would be fined a penalty. He has to pay a penalty, a fine. Do you know how much that was? One year's wage. This is no traffic ticket, friends. So here, imagine this horrific idea of being slapped with the back of the hand. You could stand on your rights and get one year's wage. To this, Jesus says, do not retaliate, but turn the other cheek. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is not saying as Christians, we should place ourselves in, the, in, in, in further harm or suffering. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do you really wanna follow me? Do you really wanna be a part of this upside down kingdom? Because the kingdom of the world, they don't do this. The kingdom of the world says, stand on your rights, take him to court, and get what is your due. Jesus says, no. 
That's not my kingdom. Turn the other cheek. Now, Matthew doesn't describe what the disciples were saying. They didn't, we don't have anything recorded about what the disciples said, but I can imagine, can't you, what the disciples were thinking. Jesus, I want to follow you. You know I do. But really? Is this what you want me to do? These are your expectations? And let's... And, 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 if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes on, not just turn the other cheek, but he says, give away your cloak. Another, another illustration. Here Jesus pictures a man in court being sued for his tunic. Let me explain. In the first century legal context, the tunic, or what we would call the shirt, would often serve as an IOU or a down payment for a fine you have to pay. So again, you're in court. Jesus doesn't say if it's your fault or someone else's fault. That's besides the point. The fact is you have to pay a fine. And it's expensive enough that you don't have enough denarii or drachma or you forgot your papyri checkbook. And so you have to take off your shirt, which was a legally binding way in which you can pay your fine. So that's the situation we're in that Jesus is describing, illustrating. And then he says, now, when you're in that situation, take off your outer cloak and give that up as well. What does that mean? Now, this makes much more sense if you understand the context. You see, for the Jews, did you know that the outer cloak was perhaps considered one of the most important possessions that they had? Let me put it this way. Do you remember in the Old Testament there's a story about a brother who was despised by his other brothers because his father gave him this amazing technicolor dream coat? Remember that? <laughs> who was this? Joseph. Why was that coat so important? It wasn't important just because it was beautiful. It was surely that. But it was because his father gave it to him. And it was considered this kind of familial, paternal gift to the son. That's how important this cloak was. Because it represented the family. But it was more important than that. It was actually practical too. By Jewish law, if you let somebody borrow your cloak, by law... At sundown, you actually had to return it. That's how important this was because oftentimes it also served as a blanket for people, practically. Now that's how important this cloak was, this outer cloak. Now Jesus says, you're in court, you have to pay this enormous fine. Take the most important thing you possess in this world and be willing to give it up. Give it up. Jesus, I want to follow you. You know that. I want to be your disciple. But really? Give away your cloak. But wait, there's more. This is like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. Let me give you another illustration, Jesus says. Go the extra mile. What's going on here? Third illustration. Again, the phrase is understandable if we understand the context and background of the time of writing. Remember, during this time, the Jews were not a free people. By this time, the Roman army had come, had conquered Israel, had conquered Palestine, annexed it as one of their own properties and territories, and introduced new Roman laws. And one of the Roman laws they introduced was this law where they could make any Jew walking on the street, sitting in their home, they could force any Jew to pick up the armor and carry it a thousand paces, one mile, by law. 
You can imagine how the Roman soldiers took advantage of that. Hey, Jew, pick up that rock and carry it one mile. And by law, he had to do that. Now, Jesus says, to the shock of his disciples listening, when you've been drafted, so to speak, by the army, and you've got to carry whatever they tell you to carry for one mile, carry it two miles. Now, again, Jesus is not saying, count off your paces and can count off another thousand That's not the point. It's an illustration. He's saying what? He says, if you want to be my follower, I need to explain to you the expectation of this law of not to retaliate. Let me illustrate it this way. When you're put in that situation, this is how you respond. Jesus, you gotta be kidding. Do you know how the Romans treat us You know, the Jews hated this law more than any other law because it was a public reminder, a daily public reminder that they were slaves to the Romans with the heel of the Roman shoe upon their neck. Jesus now has the gall to tell them to do this to the Romans? Lord, increase our faith. Jesus is saying, do it. Do it voluntarily. The law says no Roman soldier can force you to do that, but just do it voluntarily. And perhaps, perhaps they will see that you belong to a different emperor, to a different empire, to a different kingdom with rules and laws infinitely stronger, greater, and more beautiful than any law of Rome. And then lastly, Jesus uses this very interesting last illustration He says, give to those who borrow or beg. Jesus pictures now us in a different position. Up to now, he's, he's put us in a position on the defensive, right? We're on the defensive when we're being harmed, we're being provoked, we're being tempted to respond in a certain way, to revenge and, and show retaliation. But now, instead of being on the defensive, now we're on the offensive. We're now in a position of power and privilege. People are coming to us for our time, for our talent, for our treasure. You see, this is very interesting. The flip side of the, the law, the, 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 the law here, if you see it as a coin, on one side of the coin, Jesus is saying, when you're provoked, do not retaliate, but show love. But on the other side of the coin is the same law which is meant to restrain you from personal vindictiveness also is meant to show you a lifestyle of extravagant grace. They will know we are Christians by our love, our extravagant love, giving up of our very all, giving up everything we have and own because we know that everything we have is a gift anyway and we're willing to give it up. It says give to those who borrow or beg. These, this, this, this duty, this Duty to give was not a legal duty for these early disciples. Yet Jesus is showing them and us that the same law that restrains us from evil acts is also meant to teach us to freely express a lifestyle of grace. And so the true expression of this law of equity is found in the intentional yielding up of not only our rights, but yielding up of our very all. Indeed, loving with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And only when we show this kind of gracious love and sacrifice for our enemies 
even our enemies closest to us, will they see what the God-given meaning of the law really is and perhaps then they will see that our citizenship is in heaven and not in Palestine, in Rome, in Korea, or even in America. So these are Jesus' expectations. Turn the other cheek, give up your cloak, go the extra mile, give to, the bow, give to those who borrow or beg. You ready to follow him? These are Jesus' expectations. This is his expectations of kingdom love. The disciples must have been paralyzed by the demands and yet gripped by the challenge. Shocking though it was to these first hearers, Jesus' teaching here in Matthew would eventually produce men and women who would turn the world upside down for this kingdom. It included 11 ordinary guys who didn't understand at first but finally discovered the key. Friends, the confrontation of this sin, of our hearts that are so prone to this sin of hatred, and the expectations that Jesus has had to be transformed by a sinless substitute for us. Only because of the transformation that Jesus provides can we actually love others. So we move to our third and last theme, transformation. Having seen Jesus' confrontation of our hearts that are so prone to hate and Christ's expectation to perfectly love our enemies, we now turn to our last point of transformation, the transformation of our lives through the gospel, because that's the only way you can love your enemies. How is that? Because it's through the gospel that we discover the penalty-paying work of Christ and the power-providing work of Christ. Jesus is our penalty-payer and our power-provider. Let me explain. Why is this so important? Friends, the only way we can ever confront our sin of not loving our enemies and receive the power to love our enemies is by putting our complete trust in Jesus alone and his grace. It's simple yet profound. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And the more we trust, the more we believe, the more we rest, and the more we rely upon Jesus, can we truly love our enemies united to Christ alone. How do I say this? Because Matthew and Luke and the other gospel writers describe the gospel for us and how it connects to Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter five. In fact, Matthew's teach, Matthew records for us in Matthew 5 Jesus' teaching, but he also records for us how Jesus transformed this law in Matthew 5 and Matthew 27. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27 as I read from verse 27 on and try to hear the connection between Jesus' expectations of the law and him fulfilling it on our behalf as our sinless substitute, our penalty payer. Starting in verse 27 of chapter 27, we read this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into, into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Turn the other cheek. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him. Give away your cloak. 
And they led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man, a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service, whom they drafted to bear his cross. Go the extra mile. Skipping down to verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. Give to those who borrow or beg. Friends, is this just a coincidence? Or was this planned all along by your gracious Father in heaven who gave to you his only son, a sinless substitute to pay the penalty you deserved for not loving your enemy? Jesus did it all. He turned the other cheek. He gave up his cloak. He went the extra mile. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He did good to those who hated him. He blessed those who cursed him. And he, like his father, was gracious to all. How? By giving up his life for sinners like you and me so that he can pay the penalty so we can be forgiven for not loving. Friends, the only way you can love your enemies is by first, if you've been transformed by the grace of Jesus on the cross from the inside out. When you begin to realize what Jesus did for you daily, daily repenting and believing of what Jesus did for you, it gives you power. You see, friends, he's not only the penalty payer, but the power provider. Luke, in chapter 24, records for us what Jesus said after the resurrection, after he, before he goes up to heaven on his ascension, he gathers his disciples and he promises something to them. He says, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with what? With power from on high. Friends, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same resurrection power courses through your veins if you believe. Beloved, believe and believe again. And as you believe in the power that God has for you, you can love your enemies because it's not about you. It's about Jesus working through you, living in you, and loving through you. This is God's promise to you. Beloved, believe. Believe. And it is this grace, the penalty-paying power-providing grace of Jesus that will transform your heart, your mind, your words and deeds so you can love your enemy as Christ has loved you. And friends, when you get gripped by this sacrificial love, it'll transform you. You don't have to muster up the courage. You don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Jesus gives it to you. So this is yours. I've died for you. I've given my spirit to you. Now go, go and love. Ernest Gordon experienced the transforming power of sacrificial love as he experienced a miracle on the River Kwai. 
Though the strain of captivity, the, these prisoners had degenerated to barbaric behavior one afternoon, a miracle after that would forever change these prisoners. The Japanese guards carefully counted tools at the end of a day's work, and on this particular day, the guard shouted that one tool was missing, a shovel was missing, and so he walked up and down the ranks of the prisoners, demanding to know who had stolen it, and when no one confessed, he screamed then, all die, all die, and he raised his rifle to shoot the first man in line. And just then, down the end of the row, one solitary prisoner stepped forward and said quietly, I did it. Immediately, the guard fell on him with a fury, beating him, kicking him, striking him. And even after all these blows, the prisoner did not fall. Enraged that this prisoner didn't fall down, he raised his rifle and brought it crashing upon that prisoner's skull, and the prisoner fell to a heap on the ground. When the assault, fi assault finally stopped, the other prisoners picked up their now dead brother and marched back to camp. Later that evening, when the tools were counted again for the evening shift, the crew discovered that a mistake had been made. No shovel was missing. And at that moment, one of the prisoners remembered the verse. Greater love have no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Word spread like wildfire throughout the camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save the others. The incident had a profound effect. The men who for months lived like animals, trying desperately to survive, began to treat each other like brothers again. And without prompting, these prisoners began to look out for each other rather than just themselves. And although to be caught meant death, prisoners undertook expeditions outside the camp to find food for their sick fellow, and so thefts grew increasingly rare as brothers started thinking less of themselves and more of the others. Sacrificial love transforms. As a newly appointed chaplain of his fellow prisoners, Ernest Gordon experienced firsthand himself the transforming power of sacrifice and grace. One day he and his fellow camp prisoners saw a group of wounded Japanese soldiers coming back to camp on the back of the trucks. They could see that their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and even excrement. Their wounds were so sorely inflamed, they were full of pus, crawling with maggots. Clearly, they had been left in this predicament for weeks without any treatment. The prisoners, however, were immediately moved by compassion for these men. So without even any hesitation, one of the prisoners took a pail of water and began to slowly clean the wounds of a dying Japanese soldier. Other prisoners began to join in, offering even their meager scraps of food and water. The Japanese guards actually tried to prevent these prisoners from helping these sick men who were clearly no longer fit for action. Apparently, whenever one of them died en route, he was simply thrown off into the jungle. The prisoners finally understood why the Japanese were so cruel to them, they barely cared for their own. Gordon and his fellow soldiers ignored the guards and knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and to say a kind, encouraging word. Soft but grateful cries of thank you were uttered. On being rebuked by another allied officer, the simple yet powerful and poignant words of Jesus came to Gordon, love your enemies. 
sacrificial love has transforming power. Such was the transformative power of grace that when liberation finally came for these prisoners, the prisoners treated their sadistic guards with kindness and not revenge, with love and not hate. When the victorious allies finally swept in, the survivors, looking like human skeletons, lined up in front of their captors. The liberating allied soldiers were so infuriated by what they saw, they wanted to shoot all the Japanese soldiers on the spot. Only the interventions of the victims prevented them. The captors were spared by the captives. The exhausted yet forgiving men said, let mercy take the place of bloodshed. Not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb. They all insisted, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. Beloved, here is the transformative power of grace. The power of grace transforming ordinary people like you and me into extraordinary followers of Jesus and his upside down kingdom. And it is my prayer that as you recognize and rely and believe again the power of the gospel, that it would transform you to people of love, that you would transform this church, this community, this city, this world, for Jesus and his upside down kingdom as you love your enemies by grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these simple yet powerful words of Jesus. Thank you for the reminder that you've done it all for us, paying for our penalty, but also providing the power that we need to love our enemies because, Lord, you know we can't do it on our own. Thank you that you have done it once for all on the cross. But also thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the resurrection power that we need to love our spouses, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers, this city, this church, this world for your kingdom. May it be so, Lord. May we be a people that's so gripped by the gospel of love that we love those right around us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.